0: If you'll take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews. We're going to resume our examination of this passage and think a little more deeply about some of the things that we addressed last week. Um, So Hebrews chapter 7, if you'll join me in standing as we read out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at verse 11. Now therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord Christ arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of fleshly commandments, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and its unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us grace and clarity and understanding. We pray, God, that as we consider what the perfect righteousness of Christ has purchased for us, That we ourselves would be brought to worship. God, let our hearts be filled with the truth of who you are. And let our eyes be fixed steadfastly upon he who is our everything. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So we've been given this bag of blessing in Christ as we concluded with last week. It is the perfection that is promised in Christ. And we're going to spend some time thinking about the different aspects of this perfection and what it is that Christ has done. Because this perfection completed us, and it is completed in him on our behalf. This set of blessings that are perfected in Christ and distributed to saints are things that could never have been accomplished in the law. They could never have been fulfilled in the Levitical system of sacrifices and imperfect obedience. And it is something that was impossible for the law, and it was impossible for us to escape the consequences of our sin. If God would not have completely saved us, we would not be saved. If he would not deliver us, we would be condemned. But praise be to the Father, and praise be to the Son, and praise be to the Spirit, for God has done what could not have been done otherwise. He has done what we could not, and he has given to us righteousness. He has given to us inclusion, he has given to us adoption, he has given to us glory, in addition to the freedom that is ours in Christ. So I want to think with you this morning about the idea of perfect righteousness, because that's really where it all begins. Um, It begins in this idea that apart from God... We are literally apart from God. There there is nothing that would allow us to approach him. Nothing that would allow us to pray. Nothing that would allow us to seek his face. Nothing that would allow us to expect that he would have anything for us except wrath and pain. Because that's what our sin deserves. Our sin deserves us being cast away from God, and apart from God's mercy, we have been ruined and are hopeless in our sin. Our sin has completely destroyed us, and we need an intervention that is beyond us. The scripture describes us in a way that is less than flattering. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3 gives us a description of mankind apart from God. And bear in mind, as we go through this this morning, that this is the condition of the world in which we live even now. Although Christ has died and been raised, and we have hope, and we have purpose, and we have the promise of all of these things being given to us, do not for one moment lose sight of the fact that those who are outside of Christ, those who you know, who you love, who you come into contact with constantly, they are still under the just condemnation of God until mercy is given to them. This is the most perfectly relevant message that God has ever given to mankind. It is the promise of forgiveness in Christ. And don't let anybody tell you ever that they don't need to hear the truth of the gospel. Whether they understand it or not, it is the one need that we all have. And those who are found in Christ need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel constantly. We need to hear the gospel, we need to speak the gospel, we need to live the gospel. So let's back up this morning and remember what we were, and remember what they are, and give praise to God for what we are no longer. Amen? Romans 3, starting at verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit, and the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin but now the righteousness of god apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of god through faith in jesus christ to all and on all who believe for there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god this is a description of all of us. All of our aims and all of our thoughts were evil. And left to our own devices and left to our own desires, all of our aims and all of our thoughts are evil. If it's not for the grace of God that calls us to himself, that pulls us towards him, there is nothing in us that seeks after God. There is nothing in us that desires him. There is nothing in us that even agrees with him. Apart from God's mercy, our perception of God is that whatever he desires is wrong. Whatever he wants is wrong. He is a bully. He is mean. He is harsh. He is ugly. Everything that he likes is just things that we don't, and we just want to have fun, and God is a meanie for not letting us have our fun. However people want to put it, that is the underlying desire of mankind, a desire to be free from the tyranny of a sovereign God. The truth is that we are all slaves to sin. That we have all sold ourselves to sin because of our desires to have what we want. And the taskmaster that is destroying us is our own sinfulness. But until we can see the world aright and begin to understand that what God says is true and good and right and beautiful we will continue to be destroyed by our sin. Or we'll tell ourselves that we're good people because we'll cherry pick a list of a few things that we're not going to do and we'll look down on everybody who does those things and we'll feel good about ourselves because we don't do them. But in the end, even the things that we pretend to not do, we do. For we are sinful and ruined throughout. And this is mankind. Mankind. So those who say, well, I'll just do the best I can, and God and I will sort it out on the day of judgment, will find that their passing into eternity is less than pleasant. For they will find that when they stand before God, the truth of who they are will be laid naked before them. And there is no hiding from Him on that day. And there is no hiding from His judgment, and there is no reality in which you can escape the consequences of your sin. In that day, you will find that judgment is passed upon you, and it is nothing but misery and torment and sorrow for all of the rest of eternity. The day of forgiveness is today, and it is the day in which God has offered to us mercy beyond ourselves, because we were under a sentence of death. We were under a sentence of ruin because of our sin. We, we read that all of us were condemned, and the law could make nobody good. And in the end, the impact of that sentence had its consequence in our lives. As a people who have been saved, as a people who have been called out of that, it is sometimes easy for us to forget what we were. It's sometimes easy for us to forget that we used to think that way that we used to love sin and we used to be ravenously hungry for the the ruin of our own flesh by the things that we think we enjoyed. Listen to how Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says this, just as the others. So those who believe that their inherent goodness or wisdom or their their less sinful natures or whatever it might be is the thing that God looked at and said, yeah, okay, I'm going to choose this one because they're a good person, misses the truth of Scripture which tells us plainly that we all were by nature children of wrath. That we all were by nature foes of God. That we all were by nature a people who hated his righteousness. And that in that hatred, we worked out the fullness of our rebellion to the best ability of our strength and opportunity. Now this means that none of us were as bad as we could be, But all of us were as bad as we could get away with. (laughs) We did the best we could to be as bad as we possibly could. And we, we tried everything we could. And we just couldn't be any worse because we didn't think we could get away with it. We didn't have other opportunities. We ran to the limits of our strength. So even in our sin, God's mercy restrained us. Even in our ruin, God's mercy kept us from some things. But let us never pretend for one moment that that had anything to do with any inherent goodness in us. Because we were all by nature children of wrath. Just exactly like the ones that we like to look down on. Just exactly like the ones that we like to feel better than. See, this defines us. And if we lose sight of this truth it will taint us even still. If we lose sight of the reality that we are only what we are by the mercy of God and that we were only restrained from even that sin by the mercy of God, whatever that sin might be to you. Maybe it's the sin of loving cats. I don't know. That's a terrible thing for somebody to do. But whatever it might be that that you were held back from, it is the mercy of God That held you back from it. So while we look down our noses on people who fall into various sins. Let us remember that it is God who preserved us from those very sins. And it is God who held us in his hand. And this is important for us to keep in mind. Because we live in an age when the church has largely alienated itself from the process of evangelism by refusing to remember that evangelism is an act of mercy and that mercy is by nature undeserved. Right? If you, if you go around looking at people and saying to yourself, well, that person doesn't deserve mercy and that person doesn't deserve mercy, but that set of sins that this guy's involved in, I can relate to those, so he deserves mercy. You've missed the point of Mercy. You've missed the point of the gospel. You've missed the point of it all. Because we were all ruined under sin. And we were all destroyed by the very things that we longed for. And the only thing that God didn't destroy us for them because of was his mercy. If he was going to treat with us fairly, we would all be destroyed. We would all be damned. It is mercy and mercy and mercy that holds us in the hand of God and it is mercy that has always held us in the hand of God. The law which was given to teach us our sin couldn't help keep us out of it. It defined the parameters but it had no strength to preserve us. It had no strength to keep us out of the things that we wanted to do. Romans 8.3 says, What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. This means that the law had no power to stop us from sinning. It was a law given to define. And it was a law given to define the parameters of the things that God approved of And the things that God did not approve of. And it was a means by which those who were being mercifully held by the hand of God to desire the things that God approved of could, by His mercy, find a way into His presence. But it was not the law that changed them, and it was not the law that gave them anything that they would need to stay out of sin. It was still the mercy of God. Because the law itself could not save anyone. (coughs) Excuse me. Romans 5 6 says, When we were still without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. There was nothing in us that had strength to draw us to God, there was nothing in us that could ever have said, The law plus my power will be enough. So the man who says, I'm going to go out, I'm going to do the best that I can, I'm going to obey the Ten Commandments, will find himself, like the rich young ruler, coming to Christ and saying, what must a man do to be saved? And Christ will say, you have the commandments, keep them. And he'll look at them and say, well, I've done all these things. I've obeyed. And Christ, not wanting to argue with him, the Scripture tells us that he loved him, said one thing you lack. Go and sell everything you have and come and follow me. Now this is not a command by which we can buy our way into heaven. That wasn't the point. What Jesus was doing was showing him the reality of his own heart because the scripture tells us he went away sad for what reason? He was very wealthy. He had many possessions. And he was unwilling to part with his possessions even at the price of his own soul. Which tells us what about the rich young ruler? Had he really kept the commandments? No. No. Which one had he missed? Well, besides all of them. The first one. He had a God besides God. And that God was his money. You see, when we drill down to the bottom of what it is that motivates us, we always find that our sin is the heart of our problem. That our desire to pursue our own wants... And our desire to pursue our own ruin and our desire to pursue our own destruction is really what the issue is. And there is nobody who is exempt from those basic desires. This is the inheritance of our father Adam. We died in our sin. And that part of us that would commune with God and would desire God and would respond to God died in our sins. And it is not present in anyone until God sovereignly puts it in. And when he does, immediately everything changes. But it's his mercy because, apart from that mercy, we are all ruined. Somebody's going to say, well, I'll keep the law and I'll obey the Ten Commandments and I'll fulfill the Jewish law. There's a movement in the church to go back to the Old Testament Jewish laws, the feasts and the Sabbaths and the holidays and the dietary restrictions. And and I don't know, maybe they're they're trying to institute sacrifices. They believe that's going to happen again in in some future time. But listen to what the, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 4. It is not possible... That the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. It is not possible for the sacrificial system to do anything. All the sacrificial system could ever do was to be a picture, a representation, which showed us the forbearance of God and God's willingness to put our blame and our punishment upon another what was the problem with the old testament sacrificial system well in short terms according to hebrews 10:4 it was the object upon which god's wrath was put the blood of bulls and goats was not qualified to take away our sins it was qualified however to stop the payments and accrue interest <laughs> against the day of its coming so all the people out there in the United States today that are getting letters from the government saying, hey, you don't have to pay your student loans. It's all good. And they're going, "Woohoo! spend all the money. Guess what else is coming? The interest, which is still accruing on the principle. There is no free ride, even in our financial system. There are no free rides anywhere. And so all of the sin that was being amassed from the time of Adam until the time of Christ... was accruing interest. (laughs) God in his forbearance was overlooking them, was setting them aside, until such time as the fullness of his wrath would be poured out upon an object that was fit and worthy and able to bear it. And that object was his son. Look at me again at Romans chapter 3. We'll just pick it up where we left off at verse 24. Verse 23 told us that there is no difference, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24 says this, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. To demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God had passed over the sins by his forbearance. He had allowed them to... What's the expression today? To be paid forward. He had allowed them to be delayed until such a time as he himself would undertake the task of paying the debt. Now, not only did he pay the debt for all the sins past, but he paid the debt for all the sins future for all of the children that he himself has chosen. There is no sin belonging to a child of God which will not be counted in the blood of Christ. All sins, past, present, future, they are counted and paid and atoned for in the blood of Christ. Even your sin of doubting that truth. When you say to yourself, oh, I did this terrible thing and now God hates me. You recognize that you are casting aspersions on the worth and beauty of what Christ has done for you. Stop it. If God has chosen you, he has determined to love you. And there is nothing that you are capable of doing that will make him stop. So stop doubting his love. And stop doubting the power of his forgiveness purchased by the wondrous strength of the blood of Jesus. Rest in it. Be triumphant in it. Understand that it has transformed everything about you and you are no longer an enemy to God. You have been made righteous. And the word righteous in its core means what? means that you are in a right standing in the view of God. You are counted as correct in every way. And all the husbands in the room said, I know it, I'm right. no. <laughs> You are counted as righteous in the sight of God. You are counted as being acceptable and accepted. As when God looks at you, he finds nothing to take umbrage with. He finds nothing at fault. You have been made acceptable and you have been made worthy by the blood of Christ. You are not worthy in yourself. Don't mishear me. But you have been made worthy by the blood of Christ. Which is why God tells us that we are more than his servants. We are his children. You see, God promised this perfection. He promised this righteousness. We just didn't get it. We didn't understand what he was telling us through the law. We didn't understand what he was telling us through the prophets. We didn't understand the promises because, as always, we tend to look at us. As always, we tend to look at our own abilities, at our own strength, at our own desires, at our own way. This comes back to the problem of sin. Even in our religion, we are sinful because we want it to be about us. We want it to be about our work and our strength and our desires. We continue in these things, but God in His mercy gives us truth. And God had overlooked all of our sin and all of our ruin, and He had promised to us Restoration From the very time of man's sin, God promised restoration. Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking to the serpent. He's telling the serpent, There is a day coming when this is going to be paid for. I'm going to restore my people. His rule was promised to bring righteousness and restoration. When Messiah comes, the promise of God was that it would make his people perfect. Listen to how Isaiah puts it in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 21. He says, your people, speaking of Messiah, shall all be righteous. Really? Your people, Messiah... "...shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, so that I may be glorified." See, what's at stake here? It's the glory of God. It's the truth that God alone is worthy of praise for salvation. It is the truth that since God alone is worthy of praise for salvation, God is going to make certain that nobody but Him gets that praise. He's going to make certain that the plan of salvation cuts us out of the loop of anything to do with it except receive it from him when he tells us it's now time for you to receive it. Even us receiving it is his power. Even us receiving it is his mercy. Even us receiving it is his goodness. It is all about God, it is all about his work, it is all about his power. And the righteousness that he promised to give us in Messiah, he promised from the very beginning. He promised that He would make us righteous. He promised that He would make us acceptable in His sight, and He gave us a law that couldn't do it. This is the burden of the writer of Hebrews. This is what he's expressing. This is what he's unpacking and what he has been unpacking. Is that the Old Testament structure and the Old Testament priesthood and the Old Testament law could not accomplish what God had promised. All it could do was hold time. Righteousness had always been the target. Righteousness, real righteousness, the power of God to make us acceptable in His sight, had always been the goal. This is not a new development. It's a new completion, but it's not a new purpose. So, so those who want to teach that God has, has been giving us these changing dispensations of glory and grace that have all been different and all been strangely twisted up so that we would get it wrong so that we could go on to the next dispensation so finally we would come to Jesus and something would happen. They, they've got it all wrong. God never changed His plan. He never changed His purpose. He never changed why something was given. And the law which some want to return to, was never given to purify us. It was never given to make us holy. It was never given to make us righteous. But righteousness was always the target. All the law did was define it. What is the standard of acceptance under the law? Perfection. It's righteousness, right? Right? This is what it takes to be acceptable in the sight of God. Does anybody want to pretend that even for one moment in their entire life, they managed to get it right? I think if you're honest with yourself, you'd have to say no. I see a lot of heads doing this in the room. I don't know where they're doing elsewhere, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have to acknowledge the truth that there isn't one heartbeat in all of our lives when we've ever gotten this completely right. Just on the ground of the violation that the rich young ruler gave. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What was his response? Well, it's really simple. It's just one thing. Just love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if it were up to us to do that, then, beloved, we would all be going to hell. Because there's not a one of us that could ever get that right. Not even for that long. You cannot love God as you ought to. But still, it is the target of our salvation to make it so in us, and God will one day bring it to completion. It is the truth that God is fashioning this glory and working it out in us, and it is just as true that what He has given to us in Himself he has given to us in Christ. Jeremiah 23.6 says this, In his days, speaking of Messiah, Judah will be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. So the righteousness that we need, the righteousness that God intends to give to us, the righteousness that God intends to produce in us, is a manifestation of the very righteousness of God himself. The Lord is our righteousness. And Messiah will be called the Lord is our righteousness. What is it then that this is communicating to us about what God had been working toward throughout all of his work with Israel, including his work with the law? It was to bring us to the point where we would recognize that the righteousness that he required, the righteousness that we need, is something that we do not possess. It has to come from him. We can't do it. We can't work it. We can't make it. We can't fashion it. We can't even understand it. It's him. And the fullness of everything that God has been doing throughout all of his working with humanity has been to bring us to the place where he makes a people righteous for the sake of his own praise and for the sake of his own glory. And he does so by the power of his own arm. Do you know he doesn't need your help to make you righteous? You know he doesn't need your help in order to combat your sin? He calls you to engage in actively fighting against sin. But he doesn't need you to get it done. In the fullness of time, he will accomplish it. Which means that the struggle that we engage in right now has a purpose besides making your life good so God will like you. And I hope that's a freeing thought. Because if you're still stuck in that place where you think that God doesn't like you every time you sin... You're on a roller coaster of misery. What it's teaching us is to love Him. Because God gives us the things that we think we want so that we learn the taste of bitterness. So that we look at it and go, Oh God, How, how stupid am I that I have to keep running back to this? So that our hungers grow. And our desires mature. And the goodness of God becomes the one thing that we want above all else. Don't think for one minute that God needs your work or cooperation or power or strength or spiritual disciplines or anything else in order to purify you. He doesn't. He purifies you according to his own time. Which means that when you mess it up, He doesn't love you any less because he's already given you the full payment of love. He's already given you Christ. He's already paid the debt for your sin and he's already demonstrated that there is nothing that he would not do to save you for the sake of his own glory. He loves you and you can rest in that love until the day that you die. And beyond. He has loved you. And the righteousness that he gives to you. This alien righteousness that makes you new. And makes you clean. And makes you accepted in his sight. Is something that he himself. Both possessed. And earned. By his life on the earth. He gives to you the alien righteousness of Christ. He imparts that to you. He imputes to you the righteousness of Christ and he does so because in the end it gives him the glory for your salvation and it gives you a righteousness that you can't break. Because if you had anything to do with making it, you would have the power to destroy it. You understand that? If, if all of salvation was the work of God except one tiny little thing, Just one, name it. I I don't care what it is. Maybe it's that you would never in all of your life have on your left shoulder a piece of red thread. I, I don't care. Make it up. Make it as stupid as you can possibly make it. The more stupid you can make it, the better you make my point. Does anybody want to risk their soul on keeping that one thing for their whole life? anybody not at all may it never be because if it were up to us to have any part of our salvation we would not be saved it is the working of God from start to finish and the righteousness that he gives to us is his it's his glory It's his truth. It's his power. It's his life. It's his blood. It's the fact... Check this out. It is the fact that God loves Jesus. Right? Do you think that God has any problem with Jesus ever? About anything? No. And that's the righteousness... That has been counted to your credit. See, God's not looking at your successful obedience and saying, there's your righteousness. Hope you like it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God counts us As possessing the full and complete actual obedient righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's the righteousness that he sees when he looks at you. Just chew on that for a minute. There's nothing that you can do that will upset that balance. He promised this righteousness. And he promised this righteousness because this righteousness is the only one that will last. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Still got your Bibles open to Romans? Just flip a few pages to the right. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 30. And listen to how Paul describes it here. Of Him, you are in Christ Jesus... Who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, let him who glories, glory in the Lord. Of him you are in Christ Jesus. So the source of our salvation is God in Christ, giving us what we have in Christ. He's chosen us, he's saved us, he's done all the work to put us in Christ. And then he says, of him you are in Christ Jesus, who, Jesus, became for us on our account, in our place. He became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The whole package. We've been given the entirety because we have been given Christ. But what's more, not only has He given us this alien righteousness, given us this reality of Christ being counted to our credit, which just boggles the imagination, He also promised to actively and actually destroy sin and death. So not only does he say, I'm going to count to you the full and absolute righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm going to count it to your credit as if you did all of these things. But I'm also going to eventually take the things that you're still stuck in completely away so that they no longer even exist. I'm going to remove them from the table completely. Isaiah chapter 53. So Isaiah 53, just a few verses here in this most awesome chapter of the Old Testament, except maybe Psalm 119. I don't know. Can't decide. High water mark. Verse 10. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servants shall justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered among the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. So, Jesus... In dying, conquered death. His soul was made an offering for sin. What Jesus died to do was to actually atone for sin. Now, there are those who want to say that Jesus died for everybody. And therefore, everybody has their sin paid for if they just... Take the gift. The problem with that is that if Jesus actually died for everybody, actually paid for all sin, then there are people in hell for whom Christ died. Do you see the understanding of this? That means that Christ's soul wasn't actually made an offering for sin. It was merely made a potential offering for sin. That's the only way that can be resolved. But what the scripture tells us is that Christ actually paid for sin. That God made his soul an offering for sin. He removed sin. He took it away from you. So if you are found in Christ, your sin, not your sins, those as well, but that's not the operative part you need to pay attention to. Your sin, the stain of your sin, the reality of your guilt, your hatred towards God, your rebellion against his authority, Everything that you are that is an affront to a holy God has been actually completely paid for and removed from the ledger. It's gone. Not potentially gone. Actually gone. Taken away. And taken away in the death of Christ so that it could never be brought to bear against his children again. Gone. Removed. It's it's absolutely staggering. And if sin itself has been taken away, then the consequence for sin, which is what? Death, has also been eviscerated. Now we will still all physically die unless we're here when Christ returns. But that's not the terror of death. The terror of death is death on the other side. The second death, the everlasting death, the the departure from all the goodness and pleasure and mercy of God and being put into the unrefined fire, the, the unrestrained fire of his wrath for all of eternity. There is the terror of death. But if you have been found in Christ and your sin has been removed, then that punishment for your sin does not apply to you. Do you know why? Because it has already been applied to Jesus on your account. Removed from your ledger and marked up in his And your righteousness that you need to be acceptable in the sight of God is the righteousness that Jesus had removed from his ledger and counted to yours. The fullness of all of this is the working of God to save a people. And death, having been removed, has lost its power. Which is why Psalm 1610, Jesus Praying through the the psalmist says, You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Or Psalm 49.15, God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for He shall receive me. Or Psalm 86.13, Great is your mercy towards me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. See, God promised righteousness, but He went so far beyond the power of His promise To give us beyond what we could ever have asked or imagined. Which is his want. He does that a lot. (laughs) He gives us more than we could ever ask or imagine. He gives us beyond what we expect. He gives us so much more. So that he receives the glory. And it's beautiful. And it is truly glorious. But in the terms of our righteousness. God surpassed himself. He surpassed what anybody could ever have dreamt. He went so far beyond outstripping even our wildest presumptions because in the end, he made us not only accepted and have our debt removed, but he made us sons and daughters. We have been adopted into the family of God and adopted in not as secondary, second-rate, red-headed stepchildren, but adopted in as heirs with Christ, co heirs with Christ. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 13, Paul writes this If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put the death, the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received a spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. And joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. This is our inheritance. It is the full righteousness of Christ. It is being accepted into the family of God, made children and heirs with God, made into a people like unto himself. And somebody's going to say, but it says you have to suffer. Yeah. Do you know why you have to suffer? Because it is the nature of righteousness to suffer in a world that is mad. It's that simple. You Remember how we started off saying that that you hated God and everybody went like this? Do you think that those out there hate God any less? No. And do you think that as you are made like unto him, they're not going to hate you alongside? Jesus promised this. Jesus said, they're going to hate you because they hate me. Don't worry about it. It has nothing to do with you. It's just me. <laughs> That's a paraphrase. But it's the truth of it. So every preacher that stands up every single time they speak and say, God wants you to have a wonderful, perfect life, and he has all these great things for you, and you're not going to have any sorrow and any trial, you need to know right up front, he is a liar. And his very lips are set, aside, set afire by the fires of hell themselves. Because God's plan for you goes so far beyond what this life can promise. He is not afraid or ashamed or hesitant to tell you that this life is going to stink. There's going to be trials. There's going to be sorrow. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be misery. There's going to be loss. There's going to be pain. And part of it has to do with teaching us that this life is not our hope. So the man who tells you, hey... Follow after Christ and get everything that you can get here and God wants you to have a great life now. He's teaching you that this life is your hope. Isn't he? It's a wrong target. And it's a target that will send people to hell. Because God is not concerned that this life be our hope. God is not concerned that we have our best life now. God promises us our best life then. He promises us that when we come into his presence, all of this will be paid for so extravagantly that we're going to look at it and go, is that all? That's all I had to suffer? That's all I had to endure? Oh God, how wondrous you are. You see, that lesson is a lesson that we learn over time. How many of you can remember the first time you fell down in the driveway and skinned up your knees? I'm sure you did it. Happened this morning at my house, I understand. No, not Elizabeth, her daughter. <laughs> Do you know why you can't remember it? Because you've had a lot of hurt since then. And it's made all of that that was so huge in the moment seem like the very insignificant thing that it actually is. Right? Right? Understand that by suffering in this life, we learn that this life is not our hope. We learn that these things are not the things that drive us and sustain us. It's why we need to be careful of our passions and careful of the things that we want and careful of the things that we spend ourselves at. It's why we need to be careful of what we put into our minds and into our hearts and how we spend our days and spend our time. Because all of the things that bind us to this life are working contrary to the, to the need of our souls. Now, I'm not telling you not to enjoy this life. I'm not telling you not to have fun. I'm not telling you that God's not going to bless you and that there are not things that he's going to bring in this life that will bring joy and pleasure and remind you of him. But I am telling you that if your end and your goal is the stuff of this life, you're missing it. Because the righteousness of God that has been given to you lives in you to aim you to Him. Just follow with me. Follow with me. If God has given you righteousness that makes you acceptable in His sight and given you actual righteousness that He counts to your credit and given you with that new righteousness a new set of desires that aim you towards Him, Right, the things that you feed your soul that are not aimed at that, they are destructive to you in every way. They hurt you. And they also rob you of the joy that you should be having in this life. The joy that's about God. The joy that's about His power and His work and His strength and His glory and His beauty. They are the very things that frustrate you because they're the things that you think you want that never give what they promise. This whole life is the TMU, is that the website that sends the little things instead of the real things? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's, the, it's, the, it's the bad internet promise. This whole life gives you promises of something that you're never going to get. And when you spend yourself at that, not only are you finding that they fall short, but you're also not growing as you ought. It's a two-edged sword that harms you in every possible way. What God calls us to do is to recognize that everything we are and everything we do is designed to drive us to Him, and the righteousness that He gives to us makes us hungry for Him, and at the same time leaves us ill suited to find our joy in the things that are not Him. Does that make sense? It's like trying to feed a lion grass. He'll eat it when he's hungry. But after a while, what you'll have is a dead lion. Because his body can't digest it. His body can't eat it. His body cannot survive on it until after the restoration of all things and lions eat grass again. But that's a different sermon. (laughs) Beloved, you you have been made for more substantial things. And you have been made new into the image of Christ. Christ. And fitted for more substantial things. It is the ache in your soul that longs for greatness. It is the ache in your soul that longs for significance. And it has been there since you were created. And God allowed you to chase after all the things of this world to whet your appetite for Him. But He called you to Himself. And he gave you a heart that knows him and that knows the flavor of him and knows the righteousness that has been given to you as the answer to your longing. Which is why every single thing that you pour into your life that is contrary to God leaves you aching and alone. It leaves you empty. You gotta have more. You gotta have more. You gotta keep pouring it in. Because there's a hole in your bucket, dear Liza, dear Liza. A hole in your bucket. Go ahead, finish the song. (laughs) Now you will. (laughs) There's your earworm for the day. You need something substantial because you have been given this righteousness that hungers for God. Now here's the wonder of it. In giving you this righteousness that hungers for God, God also has given you a capacity in that righteousness to have what you hunger for. Has anybody ever had the experience of, of spending time in the desert, and I don't mean the physical desert, but I mean the spiritual desert, when you have spent time away from God, you, you know that you need to do better, you've not read his words, you've not prayed, you've not done anything you're supposed to do, and then you come back and all of a sudden, all of the sorrow and all of the misery and all of the loss and all of the time just goes away as soon as God starts speaking to you again. And you go, what was I thinking? This is what I've hungered for. This is what I've longed for. This is what I've wanted. That's the capacity for God that has been placed in you that will not be satisfied by anything else. It is a necessary byproduct of being made righteous because righteousness hungers for God. Righteousness hungers for God. It always seeks Him. And this is something that is completely contrary to what you were before you were saved. It is diametrically opposed. It cannot get any farther apart. Because before God saved you, you wanted everything but God. And now that God has saved you, Nothing but God will do. Oh, you may think it will, and you'll try, because we're all stupid. But nothing but God will do. Which is why all of those things leave you hungry and achy and wanting something more. Beloved, this is the work of God to make you his own. Now, here's the wonder of it. Even when you don't get it, and even when you get it wrong, God still sees you as He sees you. He, he never judges you by your sin. He never looks at your life and goes, You know, I thought I could do better with Him, but since I can't, I'm going to cut Him loose. Never going to happen. Never going to happen. Because your sins have been judged in Christ. And the record of your transgression has been taken out of the way. According to Colossians, having been nailed to the cross of Christ. God doesn't keep a record of your sins so he can flog you with them. Say, now preacher, I've heard you say that we're all going to stand in judgment before Christ and give an answer for the things done in the body, yes. Whether good or ill, Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians 5. Well, how can it be both? Well, it goes like this. When we stand before God and he shows us our life and we see the sin that caused Christ's death, we don't take the beating for it, Christ does. And Christ receives the glory for what's gone on. And all it does is fuel the praise. Let me ask you this question. Can you praise Christ for something that you don't know? I don't think so. I don't think we're going to be able to praise him if we don't have knowledge of what he's redeemed us from. I think it's all part of the deal. And and somehow, because God is God and bigger than we can imagine the sorrow and the pain and the suffering that goes in our minds right now by remembering our sin is stripped away from the equation. And don't ask me how that works because I can't tell you. I don't know. He's God. He's, He's better at it than I am. But the bad parts of that remembrance are gone. But the remembrance itself has to remain so that Christ receives the glory for what He's done. He's purchased us. And he's purchased us by his blood. Revelation chapter 5 tells us that when Christ appears before the throne of God, he appears as a lamb having been slain. The marks of his murder are with him for eternity. But they're beautiful. They are the most glorious part of heaven. And so somehow, even in the midst of our sin, God is able to redeem our transgressions to provide glory for himself. I I can't even fathom what that looks like. But it is awesome to consider. Now, I don't want to be accused of saying, as Paul was accused, let us therefore sin that grace may abound, may it never be. But I do want you to take comfort from the fact that there is nothing that you can do that will separate you from the love of God. And there is nothing that you will ever do that will make God love you any less. Because there is nothing that you ever did that made God love you anymore. He has loved you because He has determined to love you. And that translates into our lives being given perfect righteousness. He is perfecting it here, and he will perfect it there. And you will stand in his presence, cleansed and holy and righteous and joyous, even as you praise the lamb who delivered you from your sin. He receives the praise. Beloved, this is perfect righteousness. And this is a righteousness that cannot be undone, and it cannot be shattered, and it cannot be shaken, and it cannot be stained. It is a righteousness given to us by the one who is righteous. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us think through these things accurately, and that you would help us think through these things passionately. God, I ask that uh, anything I, I have said this morning that is amiss, you would strip away from us. But let every word of truth be driven into our hearts like nails, be driven into our heart, God, to spike us to your love with everything that we are, that we may not ever desire to be shaken loose, but that we may cling to you passionately with purpose and power. God, we know that the days ahead are evil but we know that you are greater. Give us confidence and give us hope. And let us leave this place determined to share the righteousness of Christ with every individual we meet. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.